This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast. We're going to be talking books today, a book called The Inner Sanctum. Joining me is the author, Damon Kitney. Welcome, Damon. Hi, how are you? Pretty good, pretty good. And I think most people uh, who are listeners to the Media Week podcast would be familiar with your byline, a journalist with The Australian for just over a decade. Is that right? Just marked 10 years uh, this month. Mm. Okay. Well, congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. As a bit of a milestone, I guess, you've um, the, a book has been um, published, a collection of your, I guess you call them your, your, um, your star profiles, I guess. Of, um, of, they're mainly all CEOs of Australian companies pretty much. Yeah, it's a bit of a blend. There's, um, I'd, I'd say, a sort of blend between public and private. There's a few CEOs in there. There's a few directors. Um, probably the majority are uh, you know, private wealthy people, I guess, <laughs> to put it bluntly. People <laughs> might say rich folk. Yes. Um, yeah. But, yeah, the, and I guess it's those ones that I'm probably the most proud of. Uh, the private ones um, are very hard to get <laughs> and uh, it's a long process with some of them. Sure, sure. Um, and, and I should say it's even though they're all, I guess, wealthy people, it's not really a business book, is it? No, it's really the way I describe it is a story about the humanity of business. Um, I, I think in the modern business world um, and in the modern business media, to be honest, um, there's a uh, infatuation with, um, you know, corporate earnings, share prices, market reaction, um, stockbrokers' views, fund managers' views, and all that's, you know, of course, absolutely, um, you know, legitimate and, um, you know, makes the world go around really. But I've always believed there's a part of business which is the human side of it and I think sometimes it gets a bit lost in all that noise, if we can call it that. Mm. Um, And so really... I guess one of the, the things I've been trying to do over the past 10 years in my journalism is explore the human side of, of business um, and, and in particular the very uh, private human side. And I would say, you know, half the stories in that book or at least um, and more than a third of them are stories of um, trials and tribulations where um, a business person or their family has, um, you know, had a, a health issue or a a personal crisis issue um, and it takes quite a bit of courage to be honest for those people to to talk about that publicly I mean um, you know you and I would be reticent to do that if it was a very personal thing um, so I, I guess in in telling some of those stories I'm trying to emphasize that business people are human beings like all of us and it doesn't matter how wealthy or powerful or influential you are um, you know the 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 fact that you're a human being and, um, you know, you're fallible, um, it's quite a powerful message, I think. And I think some of the, the stories that are told in there, you know, some of them are quite troubling. And I sort of, I think James Packer's too there, you know, I mean, he's, he's obviously had, you know, some real issues that he's had to deal with and for him to have the courage to open up and tell about his breakdowns and that is, uh, I think, quite courageous. And I'd say the same for some of the others who are cancer survivors to be able to tell their stories. 
you are, you mentioned James Packer then. I might, might sort of start with him. So there's two pieces, um, two profiles of him in the book. You've since, of course, actually written a, a biography of, of James Packer. Um, but you, you mentioned also in there about you've, you know, it, it takes time to, to get, in a way, you've got to pay your dues before these people will let you into their world, I guess. Um, I think you say with Packer it might have taken you close to 20 years but before you initially started covering him, I guess, to when he finally maybe felt at ease to open up to you? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, that's totally right. And, and those stories are sort of living proof of it, really, because um, the first one, which took place in Argentina uh, in October 2017, was almost a... Um, address rehearsal, I can call it that, for the, the next article, which actually ended up becoming the first chapter of the biography. Um, but I think that piece in 2017 was, um, was very powerful because it was the first time, I think, through all the years that I'd known James Packer and spoken to him and interviewed him and whatever, it was the first time he really decided to open up um, you know, I was going to say full bottle, it's probably the wrong terminology, but, um, it, yeah, to his very private world. And, um, you know, the context of that interview was he hadn't made any public commentary um, about, you know, some sensational events in his life, which included his relationship with Mariah Carey, about the big fight that he had with his sister over their dad's will. Um, his relationship with Israel, um, the arrest of his staff in China that happened in October 2016. So when I went over to Argentina to do that interview, and to be honest, I actually went over with, with very low expectations because those um, events were so complex, so controversial, uh, I really didn't know if I'd get any, anything of substance, to be honest. But um, I was just lucky, I guess, comes back to your point, we had that, you know, that stage 18-year relationship um, and I think for all the ups and downs we've had in our relationship, which there have been downs, there's been times when he wouldn't talk to me for a number of years, I think I've always been a person that he feels he could trust um, and that's not to tell a puff story about him, that's to, um, to tell his story fairly and he always uses that word, fairly. And it's interesting, when that piece was published, um, and it was a big piece in the magazine and it made worldwide headlines. And, um, and I must say I was very nervous the morning it came out because um, it was, you know, so many controversial issues in there. And I didn't hear anything from James Packer all morning, which is pretty normal with, with a subject. Usually you don't hear from them. Um, and then an email bobbed up late morning in my inbox and um, I sort of opened it with some trepidation. And uh, he wouldn't mind me, me disclosing this. He just said, um, Damon, thanks for being fair. Best wishes, James. That's all it said. And yeah. um, I think that sort of sums up what his expectations were of me. And he, he always has said, you know, you, you write it fairly and, and that's what I pride myself on. And I guess you could extrapolate that Packer example to, to all the others in there. I think... Um, you know, I think they believe that I will present their position uh, fairly. Um, if not, uh, certainly may not be the um, 
you know, the perfect piece that I would like, but I'll always be fair. I have heard, and I think I've only heard this secondhand, but Packer does seem to care about well, how he's portrayed, what's written about him, maybe if only because he, he wants it to be accurate. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Oh, and I think he wants it to be fair. <laughs> um, coming back to that word again, I think yeah. he just feels sometimes the reporting of his life over the years hasn't been fair um, because it hasn't been balanced. Um, sure, and he's the first one to, to put his hand up and say that he's stuffed up on a number of occasions and made bad decisions in his life and uh, lost a lot of money. Um, but I think he just respects the fact that he, he'd be given a hearing. And, um, I guess I've always tried to, to do that. But, you know, as I said, there were times there when he had his second breakdown during the global financial crisis where I wrote what was, you know, the facts um, and he got really upset about that. We didn't talk for a number of years. and I wasn't alone through that period, as he would, he would um, recall. I mean, he... He lost trust in a lot of people who were close to him through then. Um, but I just think it's to his great credit that, um, you know, he does trust someone in, in the media for the history that his family's had. I think it's to his utmost credit that he does that. Yeah, yeah. Um, talking about getting access and to people and you also get access to special places. You mentioned in the book visiting the, um, the Pratt home in Atlanta. Um, yeah, so that was the home that Anthony Pratt um, bought when he um, was living in America. Um, if you uh, read the story on him, he actually moved to America um, many years before his father passed away. His father passed in 2009. Um, in fact, the, the people close to it would say he was basically banished there. Um, his father and he had a very difficult relationship. Um, it's always tough, I guess, when you're the, the son and the one who's going to, in, in theory, inherit the empire. Um, so, yeah, Anthony uh, worked over there for a number of years and, to his great credit, built the American operation that is, you know, fifth largest packaging company in America today. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, that interview in 2010 was his first real big interview after his father's passing. There was a lot of pressure. It took 18 months of, of sort of getting to know him before he would agree to do that. That involved sometimes just turning up to a Pratt function to say hi to him and then, you know, um, being left to your own devices for the rest of the evening. But I just, it comes to this approach of just being a patient fisherman, as I call it. And I think that's one of Pratt's... Um, terms for my style of journalism you wouldn't mind me saying that sometimes you just got to do the the hard yard so anyway it was a result of that that he he uh, let me into his home in Atlanta and I'll never forget walking in there and on the mantelpiece uh, in the hallway actually was this photo of um, of him with his father and it was a photo that I don't think anybody in the world had seen at that point of Richard Pratt only hours away from his passing on his deathbed, basically. And it's an image I'll never forget. Um, and there was another photo on the mantelpiece of Anthony with his uh, young son named Leon um, with his grandfather only hours before he was passing. Um, and those images were just really 
powerful as a sort of uh, backdrop for the interview that we did. Um, and I had a meal with him that night, um, which was off the record, and we just chatted. And then the next day we actually did uh, some travel between his plants in America, and I got a sense to sort of see him up close with his workforce and going through the factories. And um, as you do in Pratland, you know, you fly around on a private jet doing that. <laughs> Um, and then it was quite nerve-wracking because you were sort of thinking, when is the interview actually going to happen? And then on our last flight, I think, back to New York, um, which was a good two-hour flight from, uh, I think we were down in Louisiana, um, he actually said, okay, let's do the interview. And so we sat there and did that and went through so many different parts of his life, including his relationship with his father and his siblings and taboo subjects like, um, you know, which is on the public record, the uh, daughter that his father um, fathered to, um, you know, his uh, mistress, if I can call it that, um, went through all those topics, which was very painful. But I'll never forget at the end of the interview, um, I said to him, um, which can be a hard question to ask somebody, I said, what was the last thing you said to your father? Um, thinking back to that image that I'd seen in the hallway. And he just said, uh, I told him I loved him. And I said, what did he reply? And he just looked at me and he said he couldn't speak, but he just squeezed my hand. And, yeah, I I remember sort of getting a bit emotional myself there listening to that um, story from the son talking about his father. And it's really interesting the Pratt world is a very tight-knit world. The people that are in it are very trusted. They're um, loyal to the nth degree. And I remember the two advisors I was with who I know very well on the plane that day when Anthony made that sentence, I actually looked up at them because they were sitting in the seat across and they were both basically in tears or certainly they were emotional. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, when you get those moments, um, back to where we started in journalism, it's incredibly powerful. Um, and you almost feel a, a responsibility to tell that story um, well um, and accurately and fairly um, when someone opens up to that degree. And it's, it's to extend the Pratt's like there's actually four Pratt family members that are in that book, um, which some might say is a bit over the top, but I think I've included them all because they all are so different stories. Um, of, of individuals and I guess that comes back to a theme that runs through the book of um, good succession planning in families, particularly ones of vast wealth, um, you know, is so important. And Richard Pratt, for all his faults, <clears throat> which have been documented in the media over many years when he was alive and since he's passed, made sure before he, uh, certainly, you know, a few years before he passed away, that he divided up his empire between his children um, and they all had a particular asset that they they ran um, and then they were also given a, a share in the, the mothership, so to speak, which is called Busy. And I think that was just incredibly smart because it's allowed each of the children to pursue their own independence and that's thus you see there's stories on each of them because they've all developed very interesting businesses and um, his, uh, one of his daughters has become big in philanthropy um, and so there's a big interview with her about her world uh, in there as well. So, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating world, the Pratt 
world. Um, weird and wonderful, I think that's the way I describe it. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, you mentioned you're the, the, doing the interview there. I'll, I'll ask you a little bit about the writing process before I let you go today. But just on that, you mentioned the, the patient fisherman uh, before, which you mentioned in your intro to the book. But um, the the other one is the, the general rush these days for a lot of German journalism to be first online with, you know, a breaking story and, and you know, where you don't really get time to get in-depth or, or maybe research it as much as you should before you can just push it out there and it leads me to wonder about your brief at the Australian is it a it's a role that's sort of disappearing a little bit do you are you sort of given a bit of a luxury um it, it, by the editor um or do you yes I think yes and no um, look I, I think um yeah, I certainly compared to, you know, some of my younger colleagues that are right on the front line every day, it's very hard to, to get the chance to stand back and, and do these sorts of things. So I think the paper very luckily gives me that, that opportunity and I'd call it a privilege. Um, but unfortunately, you're not absolved from, from daily duties and even as I sit here today, like I, I know I've got one of those things to do for this weekend, but I'm also juggling through other things this afternoon as well. Okay. And that's just the way that, you know, modern journalism is and it's just, I just sort of think that it is what it is. But it is important, though, to, to sit down with a clear head and, uh, you know, really concentrate on the writing of these stories. Because as I said before, it's I deem it a, a privilege to, to and a responsibility to tell some of these stories. And I know... Um, I would say, you know, after particularly after the very personal ones involving um, personal health or illnesses or tragedy, um, you come out of the interview and you're almost shaking with anticipation of what you've got there in front of you. Um, you know, some of those stories, you know, will never be told again um, and you've been entrusted with um, the responsibility to, to tell them to the world in a way that, um, again, is fair but also is well-written and, um, yeah, I guess you don't you don't think about it when you're doing it, but now when you reflect back and look at this book in hindsight, it's an incredible responsibility, and I hope for the subjects in the book that I've carried that out, you know, um, with uh, you know with the right intentions and delivered because um, yeah, it's a huge amount of trust they put in you okay. with that, and I guess. The other thing too, which is difficult, I know with a number of those interviews, and this is obvious, it's not giving away any trade secrets, you know, there are times where subjects want to go off the record to explain something to you that's even more personal than what's on the record. And them having the trust to be able to um, respect that you will not breach that is incredibly fundamental. Um, and, yeah, and you've, and you've got a responsibility there to... To do the right thing. I mean, of course, if they're going to tell you something that's, you know, <laughs> um, you know, illegal or whatever, well, that that's different. But I mean, we're not in the, those realms. But they do tell you deeply personal things sometimes, and you've got to respect that um, they tell that to you for context. But you have to respect yeah. that that's not on the record. Sure. I know for you know, as the, the journalist instinct sometimes is, oh wow, you know. What an amazing piece of information, but you've got to back 
balance those responsibilities, if that's the right word. And some people in journalism may totally agree with what I'm, disagree with what I'm saying and say, you know, you have an obligation to, to write that, but I don't agree with that. Yeah, well, you could presumably write things about certain people, then be, maybe it'd be very hard for you to get interviews after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is about the longevity of the relationship as well, I would argue. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I want to ask you three things about the, the list of people you speak to. I'll give them to you one at a time. What was the hardest interview to get? Uh, I mean, I, I think the, the Packer one was in Argentina was pretty pretty difficult yeah. <laughs> um, because I had such low expectations, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I just didn't really know what to expect. The second one, which was for the book, the, the ground rules were much clearer that, you know, it was pretty open slather as such. Um, but, I, I mean, I think there's some of the, the personal ones um, where you've sort of gone in there for a business story but you're aware and the subject's aware that there's a personal story lurking beneath. That can be really hard because you've got to choose your moment to, to draw that out and, um, yeah, the, you have to really think carefully about how you structure an interview and how you approach an issue to be able to get, again, that level of trust that people will open up. And there's no point in walking the door and saying, yeah, tell me about your cancer, but you know, it just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so no, but it's a good question. You'd have to, I'd say, that could be right up there. I mean, that Pratt interview is pretty pretty difficult as well, again, because of the pressure. Okay. Um, what was the hardest to write? <laughs> Maybe mm. you just had too much to try and get Yeah. Or, um, you know, um, or it didn't, didn't really deliver what you're looking for. Or... Yeah, that's a hard one when you think through it. Um, I think some of them can be really difficult trying to weave the personal with the professional. The one with David Crawford um, was at a really interesting point because um, he'd been in the headlines for all the wrong reasons, I guess, with um, some of the issues that happened with his companies. And I was trying to marry the personal with the with the professional, if that's the right word. Uh, and that was really hard to write. Um yeah, because they they're sort of they're mutually exclusive in some ways, but then they're not. Mm. <laughs> so I do I do remember that one was, and I was quite proud of the way that came together in the end to link those thematics. Um, yeah, because it can be can be very difficult. Some of them they sort of write themselves because the subjects are just so open that um, you just have this amazing content that they've given you and you you shape it. Um, but, yeah, some of them can be very hard when you have trying to weave the business with the personal. And then I guess the was there one one you never got was there was someone who you'd like to have in that book. You, yeah. <laughs> you've either got close and they've promised it and it never happened or... Where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> Where do I start? Um, oh, no, I mean, I'm... I'm can openly say oh, I'd love to um, talk to the Beeson family patriarch. I haven't spoken to his daughter in there, Carol Swartz. Um, 
and I've met him um, and got ve- I can say I got very close, but it just fell over. Um, and I guess that's that's the way it is. Um, but I would love to have had the privilege of, of sitting down with him and, and telling his amazing story. That's one that just comes to mind. Sorry, who was that? So that's Mark Beeson, who's right. the patriarch of the Beeson family fortune, um, and Carol Swartz, who's in the book. That's her father. Okay, yep, yep. Um, but he, I don't think he's ever done uh, a big interview. And I'll, I'll tell you the other two I would say, which speak to, to the book, uh, I never met, was never introduced to either Richard Pratt or Kerry Packer, believe it or not. Wow. Having, having uh, interviewed, and so I would absolutely have loved to have sat down with both of those individuals and done this type of interview, um, which I can never do now, of course. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I think I also would have understood their, their sons better if I had have met them and um, had some time with them. Um, there are moments in your life, I remember at Alex Weiss's birthday party, I think it was his 50th, looking across the room and Richard Pratt was standing with a glass of red wine on his own. And it's, I was think, and I thought to myself, I must go over and say hello. Um, and it's one of those times where you think, and then someone tapped me on the shoulder, I got distracted, and within 25 minutes he'd gone. And I remember going up to someone saying, where's Richard? And I said, oh, yeah, to leave. It's like an opportunity lost. Uh, you work for the Murdochs, I guess. Have you ever been involved with them and does working for them make it problematic? No, it's not problematic at all. I mean, I've been very lucky um, when I first started uh, at The Australian in 2010, um, the then editor, Chris Mitchell, and the then, um, I don't know if he was business editor, no, he was deputy editor of the paper, Clive Matheson, um, invited me to a lunch in Sydney with um, Mr Murdoch when he was in town and was only about uh, eight of us there, I think. Um, and that was pretty special and it was really interesting to, to just sit with him and he was he was just like a normal person. You had to keep on pinching yourself to think you're sitting next to, to the proprietor, but it was a very special experience. And to Lachlan Murdoch's great credit, he... Um, you know, gave me uh, a, a really detailed interview for my book on James Packer, which um, okay. was very uh, good of him because it's on the public record they've had their moments over the years where it's been difficult, uh, but he was prepared to do that, which I'm very grateful for, and it really contributed to the to the book for him to do that. But, no, I mean, it's, look, uh, yeah, I, I just, I've been very lucky to have had the time the Australian that I have and, um, you know, and I would say, uh, you know, it's to the credit of the family that they allow uh, a paper of our quality to, uh, to, you know, live and thrive. Yeah. Um, look, I'll sort of wrap this up. by I want to ask you about the writing process and that, and it's mainly for my own interest, but I think a lot of people listening to this would be interested too. I mean, I get the shakes if I get a half-hour interview and I've got to go through and transcribe and get something out of it. But you'd be only getting warmed up in half an hour. (laughs) You must end up with hours of tape sometime. How do you sit down and start to make head and tail of it? Yeah, well, I guess just years and years of practice, really. Um, 
when you do these sorts of things a number of times, I guess you there's a slight form there about the way you approach it. Mm. One thing I, I was taught um, would have been uh, 14 years ago now, and it actually it's it's another pack of story, but Pam Williams, who um, is a good friend of mine and um, is now at the Financial Review, but she was with the Australian for a time, and then I used to work for the Fin Review, and she and I both went to interview Packer in 2006, and it was a bit like the Anthony Pratt situation. It was his first big interview after the passing of his father, mm. who died on Boxing Day 05, and, um, and I was very much the junior then. I mean, Pam um, was a guru then and remains one, and so she was sort of taking the, the, the lead. And so my job after the interview was actually just to do the transcribing. Um, and she, she kindly left me with that. And it, it's, it's funny, I remember sending her the transcript and the phone rang about two minutes later and um, it was her and I thought, oh, don't tell me I've stuffed up. And she said, where's the rest of it? I said, what do you mean? And she said, where's the, trans, where's the whole transcript? And I said, oh, I sent it to you. She said, no, but where are all the, the off-the-record parts and where's all the ums and ahs and where's all the pauses and where's all... Um, and I just thought to myself, oh. And I had edited it as a news journalist would and just cut it down to the, you know, the relevant quotes. But she taught me that, you know, it's, it's the, the in-betweens and the colour and the reflections and... And I remember she taught me, you know, when you go into someone's office or home, look around you, see what's see what's there. I mean, look at, at you know what what is in their personal world. Um, and it's it was incredible advice because um, it just gives you a different way of, of thinking. Now, sometimes you don't always do these interviews in the ideal place. Sometimes they're just in a boring office. But I remember, you know, the last one in the book going to Leon's wire's office, and I guess Pam Williams advice was ringing in my ears because it was a treasure trove of stuff. There was a, um, a, a cupboard full of clothes, believe it or not. Um, and that's, you'll see in the story, that's Leon always has clothes in his cupboard in case he gets called to go anywhere in the world at a moment's notice by a client. <laughs> would say there was a nice fine bottle of red wine at the top of the cupboard as well. But then he also had a couch in the corner, which he said um, that's for his all-nighters where he... <laughs> He needs to uh, to keep in the office overnight, um, and then there were there was an amazing wall of some of his memorabilia over the years, and there was a model Ansett aeroplane from when he advised on the almost rescue of Ansett by Lindsay Fox and Simon Lewis. So, yeah, just having that sort of detail there in front of you, it's a treasure trove of stuff. And if you read the story, you'll see how much I've made use of that yeah. colour. Yeah, uh, and it tells so much about it. A person and a life to be able to to see that. Do you do you do your own transcribing then? Yeah, pretty much. My wife's helped me on a couple of ones yeah. in the Packer book thing, but now uh, and what I've actually found, which um, some people might say is crazy, uh, I often just take notes as people are speaking. Um, Okay. I find it's so much quicker and then the tape is more for checking rather than sitting there and going from scratch. There are some big interviews where you need to be so concentrating on what they're saying that it's very hard to write as well. 
Um, but I do at least try to just take notes while they're talking of times on the tape because it just makes the editing process that much quicker to be able to have reference points as such. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you need to listen to a tape two or three times to to get sort of all of it <laughs> as such or the best of it or sure. listen over certain parts, you know, a number of times to particularly really critical personal parts where you want to get the quotes right and you want to get the context right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it always surprised me when I, because I've always worked as a, um, mainly as a contributor, I've, I've edited briefly, but I've heard stories about quite well-known journalists and the copy they actually provide is pretty rough and it gets a lot of work when it gets into the office, which always surprised me. I mean, what's your stuff like? <laughs> you might be the wrong Again, person. That's a, question, that's a question for other people, I think, <laughs> for editors. But I always assume mine should be ready just to go straight in if, you know. Oh, look, I think we're all like that. Um, but, I, yeah, I would say um, I've had some very... I've had the privilege of working with some great editors over time that have improved my yeah. work. And I do... And I, I'll call out um, one of the editors of the, of the, the Australian's Weekend magazine, Cathy Osmond, who's a deputy editor there, but she had to do that Packer 2017 piece because Christine Midup, the editor, was away. And um, the turnaround on that was incredibly tight to meet the deadline. Um, and there was a lot of pressure and she improved that piece, um, you know, really well from, from what I submitted. Um, yeah, good editors make you look good. <laughs> That's been the motto of, motto of my, my life, so they're invaluable. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you mind if I ask, how did the Packer book sell? Did it do okay? Yeah, I haven't sort of checked the numbers for, for quite a while, but, um, yeah, uh, it's gone into bestseller status, so the publisher tells me, and the paperback that came out in February carries that tag. So, um, yeah, it's done done very well. Um, I've been very lucky. And, again, I uh, you know, can only thank and acknowledge, uh, you know, James for um, for his honesty in, in providing the content for that book because it was Took a lot of guts, I must say. You, you often, or not often, but you sometimes you read a feature, and I think to myself, "Gee whiz, there could be a book in that," you know. But it's a it's a pretty big jump for a writer, isn't it? Because unless you've done a book, you don't really realise what you're committing to. Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, are you very wary of getting that temptation? Oh, like there could be a book in this. Oh, look, I think you'd go through the subjects in there and I'd say, you know, 90% of them would justify a book. Um, in fact, some of them have, have written books. Mark Liebler, one of the subjects in there, his book just came out. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's it's certainly tempting, but, yeah, it is a, it's a lot of work. And I do think uh, the Packer book process was helped enormously by the access that I got to people um, I think if you don't have that access, you're just, you know, so much further behind the eight ball. But, you know, I was, because um, James agreed to talk to me, um, it certainly opened a number of doors that there's no way they would have opened otherwise. And top of that list is Warren Beatty, who kindly gave me a, a one-hour interview at his home in LA. Um, and 
I'm, I'm not giving away any secrets. I mean, James had to had to ask him. There's no way I would have been able to get that without his intercession. Right. Um, and it was to Beatty's great credit that he, he gave me the time. And, um, it was a hard interview, actually, because he was very, very cautious. And I think he wasn't quite sure where I was coming from or, mm-hmm. or what. But um, And I could have easily had another three hours with him instead of the hour. But um, he did give me a few interesting tidbits about their relationship, which was very powerful and very important for the book. But, um, but yeah, sometimes you, you wish you had a lot more time than what you've got. Sure. Sure. I just should finish on, I should mention your dad who's also got a book out. Mm, a new book. It does, yeah. Quite coincidentally, yeah. not scripted. <laughs> Same publisher, I think, Wilkinson Publishing, isn't it? Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, well, I've been urging Dad to write a book for many years, so I'm glad he finally has. It's obviously a very different book to mine. It's a personal reflection of his career. Um, but I'm biased, obviously, but I think it's a great read, so hopefully yeah. we'll write Okay, I'm going to be talking to him tomorrow. But um, just to okay. finish on and quickly, did he? Did he? How much of an influence was he in what what you've ended up doing? Um, it's funny. Like when I was at university, I did a law degree, arts law at ANU in Canberra. When Dad was in the parliamentary press gallery and was at the height of his powers, um, we never once talked about me pursuing a journalistic career. Not once. <laughs> Some people might find bizarre but it was just not a subject that came up. Um, and it was really only at the end of my degree when I still, to be honest, wasn't really sure what I was going to do. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, we sort of started talking about journalism. I, certainly I'd call him out here. Greg Highwood was very good to me in giving me a cadetship at the Fin Review in... Uh, 1995, and um, I just learned so much from going and doing that cadetship in Perth, where where he offered um, in a very small office. And, um, the stuff you learned, the mistakes you made, um, that you survived with, um, yeah, you really, you learned so much. So, yeah, I think Dad would say he's pretty excited that I had that opportunity um, and it's funny he was actually working for a competitor at the time um, inside the Fairfax stable I was at the AFR and he was at the SMH so we had to be careful of Chinese walls once I started. Fantastic all right looks been great uh, having a chat with you Damon Kitney the book is The Inner Sanctum and uh, thanks for giving us some time. That's a pleasure thanks very much for giving me the time take care. Thank you mate.